0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to be in the house of God. I get to do double duty today, so lucky me. It's my joy, my privilege. Yeah, that wasn't originally planned that way, but that's the way it's going to work out. So hopefully that's okay. Um, I thought I'd quick mention, I don't know how many of you were here last week, but I I I asked this question, how many of you uh, use logic when selecting your spouse? And I saw a hand or two go up, and I was approached this week by a woman who said, my husband definitely used logic when he selected me. And at first I thought, okay, you are really full of yourself. But then I realized, like, no, this is not at all who she is. Like, she's not like this at all. Like, she was being serious. And then, like, I realized, like, oh, her husband is an engineer. And, like, engineers, like, they use logic in everything. Everything cannot be made without logic. So it was just, it was like an aha moment for me, like, God makes us all different. We use logic for different things. And I don't know that you're always rational, but it's definitely there. So shout out to all the engineers here. We love you guys. But the question I want to ask today, the question I want to start today is Is your righteousness strong enough to allow you entrance into the kingdom of God? Is your righteousness strong enough to allow you entrance into the kingdom of God? And so today is part two of our look into Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. We are in the middle of our mountaineering with the Master Series looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And I believe we're in a pivotal part of Jesus' message to us. He has now finished with the Beatitudes, the proclamations of who is invited into this kingdom and the blessings that come with it. He shared what it would mean to the world when we live in this kingdom, that we're a light for everyone to see as we reflect his character and our deeds shine. And he is about to explain what it looks like to live in this kingdom, what it looks like to be salt and light. And so last week we took somewhat of a detour From the message. And I talked more about the psychology of our brains, how we can completely ignore facts and we can define a reality to fit our own narrative. And I submitted this idea that we're not as rational or as logical as we think we are. I know I'm not, and I know definitely some of you are not. But I submitted that and I think that as we look at everything including the way that we read scripture we want to recognize that we see things through a particular set of lenses that have been affected by our culture by our upbringing by our our tribe and by our own biases. And because of this we all have blind spots. We all have blind spots different blind spots and it's helpful to be aware that we have them because it affects how we live and ultimately it affects how far we can climb with Jesus. And so if you missed it last week, I'd encourage you to go back and look online and listen to that message. Uh, but at the end of the message, I gave some homework. And your homework was simply to have a conversation with somebody who was different than you. Somebody with a, a maybe a different ethnicity, a different class, maybe poor rich, or somebody that believed different than you did, maybe politically or religiously. Not to talk about just the beliefs because that's going to just start a fight, Right? But to hear the stories about what they went through in their life, how they formed some of their ideas and some of their beliefs. And so I had that as homework. I'm curious like, how many of you were able to do that. A couple kind of, yeah? Good. What were some of the takeaways from that encounter? See some big eyes, like, whoa. Some of you may have seen, like, oh, I really don't like people. And then, well, that's need. the Bible's contradictory. They said the Bible is contradictory. Okay, what did you take away from the experience though? Like what did you learn from them? Like as far as like how they see or how you see them. Like that was some of their beliefs. But what did you find about them that formed some of that? Uh, the church has hurt them, them? The churches hurt them. Okay. So they were hurt by the church, they were wounded. Good, good. And I think that's important because we, we want to jump to the beliefs right away and beliefs are important but sometimes we miss the whole stories of why people have reacted and why they've responded the way that they have. Any other takeaways? It's challenging to have the conversations and really dig down about, yeah, yeah, it is challenging, and if we don't take the time to, like, kind of do that, like, it's kind of a vocabulary that we really don't really know very much, so some of it is just recognize our, our own, recognizing our own inadequacies, and really how to get to the meat of some of this stuff that has formed people's lives, and that's good. Yeah, Lisa? Mm -hmm. They respond to their cultural, individual cultural, right. Mm -hmm. So they're just kind of a product of their upbringing, of their culture, everything that's kind of formed them. It's just, They feel like you're trying to Americanize them. Yeah. Yeah, and they push back against that, don't they? Okay. Some do, some don't. Good. Well, I would encourage us, as we just continue to live life, to have conversations like that. Don't be afraid to dive into some of this stuff because I think it helps us see people as people, not just a stereotype of how we might envision them to be because we think certain things, but when we really dive into all of these things, it helps us to recognize their humanity. It helps us to recognize that they're really not all that different from us in a lot of ways. And I think ultimately it helps us to love them and to recognize that Jesus loves them also. Yeah? And so the two big ideas I'm hoping we can take away from this last, last week and this week is, is this. One, said it already. We're not as rational or as logical as we think we are. And two, and this is what we're going to dive into today, is as we study the Bible— we can easily miss the heart of Jesus. We can easily miss the heart of Jesus. And what I'm going to submit to you today is that we can be doing everything that we know to follow the Bible. We can do exactly what the Bible says to do and completely miss Jesus. We can be so set in our minds of how something must be that we completely miss the point of what Jesus is telling us. And as I mentioned last week, we can use the Bible to justify our sin. We can use the Bible to justify sin. We can use the Bible to justify slavery, racism, homophobia, prosperity, divorce. Again, either to get a divorce or to stay in a very abusive and very dangerous marriage. We can use the Bible to justify misogyny, domestic abuse, murder, and even genocide. And people have done it. People continue to do it. It's, it's something that we all are prone to. We have lenses through which we read and interpret Scripture. And sometimes when we read Scripture, we see things that are not there, or we could absolutely miss something that's staring us right in the face. And a lot of times, depending on where we've been, we will see Scripture a little bit differently. Things will pop out like, whoa, aha, because the Holy Spirit wants to tell us something that we may not be open to at other times. And as we look at our passage of Scripture today, we're going to learn that the Pharisees and religious leaders knew Scripture extremely well, and yet Jesus continually criticized them again and again for their lack of understanding. And so may we have the ability to see and understand today as we seek the wisdom of Jesus. Amen? So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read this passage of Scripture together. So these are the words of Jesus, and let's read them. He said, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. You may be seated. And so I think as we read this passage, there's a number of questions that we might have. And and one, for those of us not familiar with biblical history, might be asking, like, what is the law? What does that mean? And so the law was the Jewish, it was a manual or a set of instructions that was given to them by Moses more than a thousand years before this time. So it's already a very ancient book, and it contained 613 different commands for how to do life. And it was holistic in that it affected every part of Jewish life, from the home, out in the civil area, to the way that they approached God and sacrifices, and the Jews called this law the Torah, and the Torah is the first five books of our Bible today. We call it the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Right? Now the bigger question perhaps might be is, is why does Jesus say this? Why does he say this? Why does he say, don't misunderstand why I have come? Why would he feel like he needs to say that? And so New Testament scholar Robert Mount says that to the pious Jew, the law was perfect and unchangeable. In other words, you don't mess with the law. It is the very commands of God. And yet when we look at Jesus' life and teaching, he seems to indicate that maybe he didn't always regard the law so much. Because he healed on the Sabbath, which the Jews considered work. And to work on the Sabbath was absolutely forbidden. Jesus failed to perform ritual duties. He was pretty lax sometimes in observing religious feasts and customs as outlined in the law. And so it's no wonder that some of the people there might think that he They would misunderstand. They would question his commitment to it. And then Jesus goes on to say some kind of crazy things that don't make a lot of sense in view of both his actions and the actions of his disciples. He says not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear. Not a jot or a tittle, as the King James puts it. Well, what the heck is a jot and a tittle? That's not something you hear every day. What is a jot and a tittle? Well, it's something from the Hebrew alphabet. A jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It kind of looks like an apostrophe, like that. And a tittle is something that is even smaller than that. It's, uh, it's It can be a, like a letter extension or a pen stroke that differentiates one Hebrew letter from another one. So this is one example of a tittle that kind of... If that isn't there, it would make it a different kind of a letter. And so Jesus says that not one of these will disappear until heaven and earth do. And so he says, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. How many of you ignore commands in the Bible? Why do you do that? Do you not read the words of Jesus? It says, If you ignore the least commandment, you'll be called kingdom, the least in the kingdom of heaven. You just pick and choose what you want to do? What's, what's going on? What happens? Do you have an answer? Okay, we have a sin nature. Do you willfully disobey? Is that just because it's in nature too, or do you just disregard them because whatever? It can be irrelevant. Irrelevant to our culture, but didn't you just read what we just read? So how do you how do you do that? Yeah. We justify it. And so I think, you know, we, we mentioned just how Jesus seemed to ignore some of these laws too. And like, so what is he trying to tell us? What is he trying to say to us? Like, do as I say, but not as I do? I hate that. Don't do that. But I don't think that's what he's trying to do. I don't. So if we look at the Apostle Paul, you can probably remember some different things that he said. Like, he said "Us free from the law, Right? And so in your notes, there's some scriptures that you can look at. Romans 3.28, 3.31, And I'm going to skip over those. There's one I want to read today from Romans 8.1-4. And I encourage you to write that down. But I think this says it really well. It says, Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And he says the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And Paul says in Romans 7, 6, Now we can serve God not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. And you see, church, the law was not enough. The law wasn't enough. Obeying the law was not enough. It wasn't enough to do everything that the law said. It was helpful because it taught us what sin was, but it wasn't enough. And in the same way, I would submit that your Bible is not enough. Your Bible is not enough. Because we can do everything the Bible says to the best of our ability, but it is still insufficient. Is it helpful? Yes. Is it a guide for how to live? You bet it is. Is it the word of God? Absolutely sure. Do I have a very high view of scripture and of the Bible? You bet I do. But what the Bible does is it points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus, the true word of God. The Bible does not save us. Jesus does. And what Jesus is saying is I am the fulfillment of everything that the law intended to do. I am the fulfillment of everything the law intended. The law points to me, but the law is not the end game. Our Bibles are not the end game. And too many of us stop at the Bible, we read it, we study it, we see what it says, and that's all good, but we can miss the very person that it's pointing to, the very reason for its existence in the first place, and that is Jesus. The end game is Jesus. The end game was always Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. He's our hope. He is the reason. He's all that we need. But in our quest to live righteously and to live according to what righteousness demands, to live for Jesus, we can turn the Bible into an idol. Now don't make, don't mistake me. The Bible is God's special revelation to us and praise God that He reveals Himself through His Word. Right? But the fullness of God's revelation in the Bible is is Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of that revelation. And so what Jesus does is he takes 613 of these laws, right? And he basically condenses them down into two. And we don't really get that from this passage. But we get it later on in the book of Matthew. So in Matthew 22, there's a story again of of how a religious leader comes and he asks Jesus, he says, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments commandments it's all based on these two commandments so note something here this is one of the few times where Jesus actually directly answers the question which is something he doesn't do that very often but recognize that some scripture is more important or greater than others Jesus says this he takes 613 commands and he says look at these two these are the most important And he takes two commands from the entire law, one from Deuteronomy 6, 5, which says to love God, and one from Leviticus 19, which says to love your neighbor, because in the eyes of Jesus, this was the very heart of the law. This was what it was all about, simply to love God and to love people and live a life that proves so. This is what mattered, really simple. This is what Jesus fulfilled and yet for thousands of years we continue to get this wrong because we focus on a lot of the wrong things and we go back toward the law, back to this whole list of rules so that we can check off our boxes so that we look like we're good Christians. When Jesus released us from it and he simply told us to walk in love and this is something that was repeated again and again and again as the apostles wrote their letters. Paul says, let love be your highest goal. In 1 Corinthians 14. And our lack of love, church, is what hinders us from really being able to change the world. Our lack of love is why the world often sees us as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Because we lack it in a lot of how we approach the world. And listen to what Paul says in Romans. He says, if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. So back to the question, why does Jesus say that it's not the smallest detail of God's law will disappear? Why does he say if you disobey the least commandment, you're the least in the kingdom of heaven? You know, sometimes I want to say, Jesus, I love you, but sometimes I feel like you're really good at making things confusing. And the answer is like, I don't know that I completely grasp it, but this is what William Barclay says, and I think it is very valid for us today. He said there had to be the law before the gospel could come. There had to be the law before the gospel could come. People had to learn the difference between right and wrong. And so he says that as Jesus saw it, it is our duty neither to forget nor to attempt to destroy the past, but to build upon the foundation of the past. To build upon the foundation of the past. Not to throw it away, not to say this is no good, we don't need this anymore, but to build upon it. So he's building on a foundation. He was building on what they knew. And he's saying, basically, I'm not throwing out the law, but I am setting a whole new standard. And what he does as he continues his Sermon on the Mount is he'll take different pieces of the law and he does the, the unthinkable. He essentially reinterprets them. He reinterprets them. He flips them on their head and he says, you have heard it said this. And he takes a law, and then he says, but I say this. You've heard it was said, but I say. And he goes from the written letter of the law, which focuses only on people's actions, and he goes right to the heart of the matter. He focuses on our wants, on our desires, on our motivations, on our feelings, on our our fear, and our anxiety, and on our anger, and all this stuff that is inside of us. On everything that is inside. And as we mentioned last week, this is the things, these are the things that drive the decisions that we make. Right? Our gut feelings, our intuitions, our feelings, all of that is what drives us. All the stuff that is inside us, this is what comes out. And Jesus has good news for those things. He doesn't want to just say, well, quit being angry, quit worrying, stop it, knock it off. He's got good news that he wants to speak in these things. But this is what drives everything that we do. A lot of times sideways, and like I said, Last week, we do these things from these places inside, and then we use reason to justify why we did what we did. But God wants to speak to the inside. And you see, the Pharisees were concerned all about actions. They were concerned about the letter of the law, about doing all the the right things, and they wanted to look good to everybody else. And Jesus later rebuked them for this. Saying, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. And he says, you might be doing all the right things, but you're doing them completely for the wrong reasons. Your hearts are wicked. Look! You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Look at the inside first. You see, all the law could do was judge your actions. But Jesus isn't interested in our actions so much as he's interested in our hearts. And it's our motivations, it's our desires that he wants to change. Because everything that we do flows out of who we are. Or who we think we are. And he says this, recognizing what's inside. He said, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, obedience is good. But love is far better. How many parents do we have in here? A whole bunch. A whole bunch of hands. Let me ask you this question. Would you rather have your kids obey you or would you rather have them love you? How many would rather have them obey you? Who cares about love? What's got what's love got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How many would love? How many would choose love? I want my kids to love me. Why is that? If they love you, they'll obey you. If they love you, they'll obey you. Yeah, what else does love get? Connection, happiness, relationship, all this stuff. Love is far better. Dallas Willard said this. He said, you could do all that God explicitly commands and still not be the person that God would have you to be. He says, an obsession merely with doing all God's commands may be the very thing that rules out being the kind of person that God calls you to be. Sometimes we get things backwards. It's moving from a posture of obedience to a posture of love because out of love, obedience will naturally flow. And then Jesus finishes this passage we're in today by dropping a bomb, the equivalent of a first century mic drop. You didn't know that existed, but I'm telling you. But he says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you might be thinking, oh, what's the big deal? Yeah, if I know Pharisees, like, they're bad people. And understand that we see the Pharisees and religious leaders today as proud, arrogant, self-righteous hypocrites, because that's what they were. But realize that this would have likely sent gigantic shockwaves through the crowd there. And it's, again, important to note that when we look at the Pharisees today, we already see the end of the story. We've read the words of Jesus. We recognize them as the, for the judgmental and prideful and holier than now know-it-all, that Jesus condemned again and again. But in that time, people of that day looked to the Pharisees and their religious teachers with immense respect. Because they knew all the scripture. They did all the right things. They followed the law better than anybody. And so when Jesus said this, everyone who heard him would have likely gasped and a gasp and said, well, then it's hopeless. How can I possibly enter the kingdom? How can I be more righteous than the Pharisees? And here's a little bit of background I think is important for us because when we look at the New Testament, there are a number of people and things that that seemed to just come out of nowhere. They weren't really in the Old Testament. They weren't. Things like Pharisees, because they were a group of people that just weren't so fair, you see. And the Sadducees, because they were a group of people that just were so sad, you see. Is that bad? Oh... <laughs> But these things came out in the New Testament. They weren't mentioned in the Old Testament. Pharisees, right? Sadducees, religious scribes, synagogues, demons, and even concepts like heaven and hell that we understand today were not mentioned in the Old Testament. These are all fairly new concepts. And the reason for this is there's about a 400-year gap between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, And so if we really want to understand what was going on in the time of Jesus and in the New Testament church, it's really helpful for us to understand what happened during these 400 years. Because by the time of Jesus, we see this really negative picture of the Pharisees, right? Of all these religious leaders. But I don't believe that is how they started out. I don't. And if you're familiar with Jewish history, at the end of the Old Testament, the Jewish people went into exile, right? Or they had just come out of exile. God had allowed them to fall to their enemies because they were wicked. They continually worshipped idols. They continually did detestable things. They continually went against God. And so he allowed their kingdom to be toppled. And they were taken and forced into exile into a land they didn't know. And this absolutely rocked their world. It rocked their world. And like I said, God uses things like these to get our attention. To say, hey, wake up. Wake up. I've been trying to get your attention all along, but you're not listening. And what this did is it forced them to do some serious soul searching. And after many, many years, they were able to come back to Jerusalem, but they remained under the rule of Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. And during this time, they wondered where is God? Where is God? Has he abandoned us? Are we still his people? What's going to happen to us? Will we ever have a king to rule over us like was prophesied long ago? And there was some, some fear and anxiety about this. There was confusion. There was call to war, to arms. And all of this as they wrestled with their identity and trying to figure out what went wrong. And many recognized that they had been in exile because they had abandoned God. And it wasn't until the exile where they actually decided to stop following other idols. That is when they declared there is one true God and only one. And during this time afterward, there was renewed interest in the law. And as they studied the law, there were a lot of questions that came out of it. Like, like Scripture says not to work on the Sabbath. Well, how does that work? Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to work? And how, how can we define work so that we, we don't do what the law says not to do? And then so there would be teachers that might rise up and they would say, well, I think it means this. And then they would have people that follow them and then another teacher would rise up and say, well, I think it means this. And they'd have other people that would follow them and there'd be all these different groups of people trying to follow the law to the best of their ability. And there began to be a whole new law that developed called the Oral Law that went along with the Law of Moses. And eventually this Oral Law was compiled into uh, something that is called the Talmud. And it contains the written record of this oral law and a record of the rabbinic discussions that followed. So this is huge. This contains the discussions that followed also, but this was all part of what was going on in Jesus' time. And this started because they wanted to be a more faithful people. And don't forget that. They wanted to be faithful. And this is good. The Jews were repenting. They're turning back to God. But what happened is that all of these things soon became a measuring stick. It became a measuring stick. So to be truly faithful to the law, to be truly faithful to God, now you had to do this and this and this and this. And don't forget this. And then they began to compare themselves to one another. And it began to breed pride and prejudice, and contempt, and selfishness, and all these kinds of things, and the thing is they could follow the strictest measurement of the law, and look righteous in the eyes of men, but inside they were totally rotting away, and they had no idea the measure of their own wickedness and their own depravity. You see, they knew the scriptures, they believed the scriptures, they followed the scriptures, and yet they were still rotten inside. So I think it's good to be careful. We don't want to take a lesson from the Pharisees this way. And, you know, I've heard people in the church at times do kind of just that. They'll dismiss things, like rather dismissively, arrogant and prideful. And they say things like, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You ever hear that? It drives me nuts. Because it doesn't always mean what you think it means. For example, which of these is in the Bible? Which one? Don't answer the foolish argument of fools or you'll become as foolish as they are or be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools or they will become wise in their own estimation. Which one do you follow? Which one's in the Bible? Both of them. Well, what am I supposed to do? Answer or don't answer? I don't know what to do. Do you? What about this one? Whoever is not against us is for us. Whoever is not with me is against me. Well, that seems a little contradictory. Which one's in the Bible? They both are. Guess who said them? Jesus. He said both. What the heck is that? I don't know what to do with this. It's not always so clear. Now, how many of you would do this? And this is where you have to love the Bible, right? So, if two Israelite men get into a fight, and the wife of one tries to rescue her husband by grabbing the testicles of the other man, first of all, like how many lady, how many of you guys would do this? You're like, your husband is fighting some guys, I'm gonna save him. (laughs) Like, what in the world? Okay, so again, okay, forget that. So it's, grab the testicles of the other man. You must cut off her hand. Show her no pity. Would you guys do that? Come on, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. What's the deal? You guys are going to be thinking about this for the rest of the week. Like, oh, man. (laughs) All right, how about this one? If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Lord your refuge, you will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. How many of you have made the Lord your refuge? A few hands, hopefully, more than that. How many of you are ready to go tackle some cobras and lions? Come on! You go, Sam. Super Sam. It's just not something you're going to do, but why not? It's in the Bible it says it. And so I think we can all agree, like just because something is in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean anything, because there's context involved. There's context. Sometimes things seem to contradict each other. There, there's nuance. And we have to wrestle with this, and it takes wisdom to discern. It takes wisdom to discern. I don't remember what I was looking for, but I just came across a website this week called Biblical Gender Roles. Sounds good, right? Everybody wants to be biblical. You got biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. We all want to live according to the Bible, right? I have come to uh, use immense caution when I see the word biblical because I've realized that it means different things to different people. So on this website, there's an article from 2015 called, Seven Ways to Discipline Your Wife. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's going to be in trouble. Yeah, lucky Cheryl's not here, is she? Uh, Yes. I have a feeling somebody's going to tell her, Al. Seven ways to discipline your wife. And then in, in that same website, it talk, there's something in there that basically says that, that, wives, if you are uncomfortable with something that your husband wants to do in the bedroom, then you need to remember that he is your spiritual authority and the instructor of the word. And so... Know that what you might be in comfort with is not sin. It is submitting to him as your spiritual authority. And then it takes a verse from 1 Corinthians 14, which has nothing to do with anything like that. And it's messed up. And all this to say is that we can miss Jesus. We can miss Jesus. We can read things in the Bible that are really there. They're not there. Or we can miss what is right in front of us. We can miss it. And the religious, the religious leaders of Jesus' time had the same issue. Jesus told them, he said, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. And the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they knew the scriptures frontwards and backwards. They knew what it said. They memorized it. And yet they completely missed it. They didn't recognize Jesus when they saw him. They didn't recognize the Messiah that they had been praying for and waiting for and longing for for hundreds of years. They didn't recognize him because he did not fulfill their expectations. They were so sure of what they thought they knew... That they did not, Jesus did not fit into this mold and they completely missed him. And not only did they not recognize him, they actively went against him and they eventually murdered him. That's how wrong they were. And I'm afraid that we as, as a church sometimes, and I'm not talking just about suicide and please don't hear what I'm not saying. But sometimes I'm afraid that we have resorted to a version of the law and we have completely missed the intentions and the heart behind the words of Scripture. We've, in essence, made our own Talmud. We've added our own ideas of what a Christian should look like, of what they should believe, of how they should act, of what political party they must ascribe to. All of these kinds of things. And we use these so that we can determine who's in and who's out, who's right, who's wrong. And while there is merit in some of this stuff, we've got to be really careful because when it becomes all more about protecting our own than about loving God and loving people and proclaiming the lordship of Jesus, we might be off a little bit and recognize that when we're tempted to evaluate who's in and who's out, that Jesus' disciples cross the vast spectrum of political ideology. From the conservative zealots and I'm not just talking about Judas, but Simon the Zealot, who wanted to overthrow Rome with violence, and the liberal tax collector in Matthew, who was colluding with the enemy and taking from his own people to give money to Rome. Very different. Very different. And yet, these labels and how they saw the world did not really matter to Jesus. And church reality is that the younger generation. Is largely abandoning the faith. In large part because they don't see Jesus in the church. They don't see Jesus. It's not because they're lazy. It's not because they just want to play video games or do Snapchat. It's not because any of those things. It's because what they understand to be love is not at all what they see in the church. Because the church seems more about judgment and condemning outsiders than it is uh, loving the least of these, loving the outcast, loving the despised, loving the people who are on the fringes. And they say, if that is the kind of God that we serve, then I want nothing to do with him. And I think that needs to be a wake up call for us. That needs to be a wake up call. And now I I realize some of us are going to push back on this and say that, well, loving people doesn't mean not telling them the truth, right? And I would agree. I'd agree wholeheartedly. But does that always mean necessarily that we have to lead with truth? Does it always mean that? Because I would submit that, that sometimes in our zeal, we might be hindering the work of the Holy Spirit. Where we want to get out in front of him And tell everybody exactly how it is, what's right and wrong when the Holy Spirit is cultivating that work. And we try to do the work of the Holy Spirit for him. And we try to push that all on ourselves. Not allowing him to do the internal work of changing hearts. See, what we want to do is allow God to do that. Trust that the Holy Spirit is working. Trust that he's moving. And when the time comes, we simply want to join what God is already doing. We don't want to do the work for him. We can't. And sometimes we shut the door on people way too fast when they're not ready yet. They need to f- experience the, the freedom and the life giving spirit of Jesus. And we shut the door in their faces because we're so focused on what's right and wrong. And this is how it is. Is that loving? Maybe it depends on the circumstance. But I want to be led by Jesus. And so the question is, and I think Sam asked it well, is who would Jesus be? Who would Jesus be? Who would Jesus be to the person on the other side of the political fence? Who would Jesus be to the addict? Who would Jesus be to the transgender person? Or to the child pornographer? Oh, who would Jesus be to the person who continually treats us with contempt? Or to the person who continually wrongs us again and again and again and again? Who would Jesus be? And admittedly, I don't know the answers to all these questions. But I think it's worth pondering. I think it's worth sitting with Jesus and trying to hear his heart. Jesus said, Unless your righteousness is better than the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what does it look like to love God and to love people, like all people? What does it look like to love, to to, to live life in the love of Jesus, to interpret Scripture through the lens of Jesus, a lens that is saturated in love because God is love and because God so loved the world? What does that look like? I'm trying to stir things up here. I think it's good. Sometimes we can be so set in our ways we need a little bit of a jolt because God wants to get our attention and say, hey, I love you, but you're missing this. Pay attention. Abide in me. Let my love change you. Let it fill you in love. Yeah. Yeah. So the rest of the Sermon on the Mount teaches us how to live in this kingdom of Jesus. I believe it's trying to teach us what it looks like to be salt and light. And I would submit that the Sermon on the Mount teaches us how to love our neighbor. Or perhaps even how to love God through loving our neighbor. After all, John the Apostle writes, if you can't love your neighbor who you see, how can you possibly love God whom you have not seen? Because loving people is inseparable from loving God. All the commands of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in these two commands love God and love people. And so, as we continue our journey of mountaineering with the Master, I believe there will be times where you will need to reevaluate your convictions, or reevaluate everything that you think you know, and I know I will. I have, and like I said last week, God continually exposes things in me, and I think that's good. I want to continue to climb with Jesus. i want to climb higher, and I want him to show me all the stuff that's preventing me from going further with him. But if you're not being affected, if you're not being challenged, and I would question whether or not you're really reading it, So we're going to go further. We're going to talk about some of this stuff and I'm excited to see what might come out of it. But for now, may we all be challenged and may we be humble enough and open enough to hear what Jesus wants to speak to us. Amen? Let's climb further with Jesus, church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you are excellent and worthy of of our lives. God, we submit to your kingdom. We submit to your presence here in this room. Lord, teach us, show us, expose all the things inside of us that keep us from walking closer with you, from from climbing higher on the mountain. God, may we have ears to hear and be able to discern as you impart your wisdom to us, as you lead us through the power of your Spirit. And God, expose things in our lives, the things that we're connecting with day to day that are not quite, that are missing the mark. Lord, help us to repent, to see those things for what they are, to repent and to change life, to change our trajectory so that we can walk with you. God, I pray for our church. I pray that we would be a people that are worthy to bear your name, that we are filled full of grace and truth like Jesus. And that we can partner with you. Trusting you to do the hard work of transformation in people's lives. And just letting, allowing us to participate in what you're already doing. So God, I pray you'd have your way in us, in our hearts, in our church, in everything that we do. In every moment, God, may we be aware. May we have eyes to see. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.